Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and an investigative nutritionist, and I'm on a mission to find food truth and connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture. And I'm delighted today to have as our guest Kurt Ellis, who is a writer, a filmmaker, and a Food and Society Policy Fellow. You have worked on several films of merit. Uh, you're probably best known for King Corn, in which you starred and co-produced with your friend and cousin. Is that right? Well, it was my cousin behind the camera, Aaron Wolf, the director, and then on camera with me was my best friend, Ian Cheney. Right. And okay, so you have a degree in history from Yale. Is that right? It is. Yeah. I, it's not exactly an ag school. No, it's not. And so my question has to be, how did you become interested in corn? Boy, that is a good question. Uh, it was really the realization that I was eating corn every day in forms that, you know, you can't recognize a corn cob. Uh, high fructose corn syrup or corn-fed meat are not things you recognize as, as starting on a farm in Iowa uh, or in Missouri. But coming to the realization that I, I knew basically nothing about the food I'd been eating my whole life, even after you know taking all these college classes in history and science and philosophy, was kind of an embarrassing realization. You know, I was graduating from college and my best friend and I were totally uneducated in what we were eating. So you and Ian also have this amazing family connection back to Iowa. Yeah, we, we both had great-grandfathers who grew up in this tiny town in rural northern Iowa called Green, and we kind of felt the town calling us back. So after we got out of school on the East Coast, we moved to Iowa and spent two years there, uh, and we, we grew one acre of corn in the way a typical farmer might grow a thousand acres and then set out in a way farmers don't typically get to do and, and tried to follow where our corn went as it became food. Well, it's a fantastic film, and I know that it's won a Peabody Award. It's been uh, featured on PBS, and rightfully so. Uh, you know, as a dietitian, of course, high fructose corn syrup is part of my almost daily vocabulary. But I, I know that you also got a lot of information and footage that you're now using to produce your new film called Big River. And I thought maybe we should talk a little bit about, you know, what was that missing information that compelled you to create this next film? Well, you know, we, we realized at a certain point that King Corn was only able to tell part of the story. Um, really, it's the story of how one acre of corn becomes food, largely fast food. But there's a whole other side to the, the story of an acre of corn, which is the ecological impacts of the way we grow it. In order to coax as much corn out of each acre of land as possible, uh, we use all these powerful technologies, you know, chemical fertilizers and pesticides and herbicides, and we plow up these vast tracts of topsoil in order to, to just grow as much as we possibly can. And those choices have their costs. Uh, we've, we've gotten great abundance out of our food system, but we've also created a, a surprising amount of pollution that heads downstream. Yeah, and you know, it's interesting. With, with that abundance comes a cost, too, because maybe we have higher quantity, 
but not higher quality. So we've sacrificed one for the other. And, you know, I I actually grew up on the East Coast and relocated to the Midwest about 28 years ago. And so I've had a real education here in looking out at the land. And one of the things that struck me several years ago, I was driving from Missouri to St. Paul, Minnesota, actually for a concert for the the uh, Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young Freedom of Speech Tour. It was a wonderful concert. But it was just as equally enlightening to travel along the highway and realize that I was in a sea of corn and soybeans and little else. And so I got this feeling like it was water, water everywhere, but not a drop to drink. And when I stopped to get something to snack on, you know, the, the choices were minimal, a little break time, kind of convenience store. And really what I saw were these packages of permutations of corn and soy, but nothing that was seasonal, nothing that represented the crop that might be uh, being harvested at the time. And that's one of the reasons why your film really struck me is because you look at this acre of corn and we realize, we start putting the pieces together, that this is everywhere and there we need more and better food to eat. And now with the ecological piece that you've introduced with Big River, um, we realize, for example, our water systems here in the Midwest are very much polluted uh, with atrazine. And I, I know that atrazine is one of the issues that you look at in the film. Tell me a little bit more about some of these pollutants. Sure. Uh, we, we decided to try to understand the acre of corn we grew in a, in a different way by looking at the water that, that flows off of our acre of corn. And uh, we took a canoe trip uh, heading south from our acre. And along the way, we, we take water samples out of the little pasture creek that runs through our farm uh, and out of the bigger and bigger streams and rivers as we head towards the Mississippi and finally towards the Gulf of Mexico. And we found some kind of incredible things. Des Moines, Iowa has the the largest nitrate removal facility in the world to help treat their drinking water. This is not a problem that that New York City or Los Angeles has, this massive influx of fertilizer residue in the water system. Uh, But all of these nutrients we put on the the cornfields and the soybean fields, many of them, especially the the anhydrous ammonia nitrogen, which is, um, you know, anhydrous meaning without water, those little molecules are powerfully attracted to water when they come across it. So when it, when it rains just after you've fertilized, a huge portion of the nitrogen uh, actually goes into the waterways and starts heading downstream. So there in Des Moines, they've had to build this unbelievably expensive and expensive to operate uh, nitrate removal facility just to, just to clean up the drinking water coming out of the rivers uh, enough that, that the residents can drink it without fear of blue baby syndrome which was a a condition first discovered in in Iowa, actually, among rural populations around the time chemical fertilizer was introduced. Wow. And so the nitrate that's removed, is that somehow reused again? (laughs) I I wish it were. Uh, They're they're starting to build some some containment ponds and grow algae there to to process some of the nitrate. But for most of the last uh, 15 years, the, the nitrates that have been removed from the drinking water for the citizens of Des Moines actually get dumped back into the river downstream and head south towards the Gulf of Mexico, uh, where there is a New Jersey-sized uh, area, a, a hypoxic place called the Dead Zone, 
where um, basically there there is so much nutrients uh, available in the this, where the where the Mississippi empties into the Gulf that it fertilizes algae growth like you can't hardly imagine, and so all this algae grows and dies and sinks to the bottom and of the sea and decomposes in the Gulf of Mexico and, and sucks up all the oxygen in this very large area um, that kind of grows and shrinks with the seasons um, based on how much fertilizer is, is showing up in the Gulf. And in that area, there's uh, there's basically no living fish. Uh, jellyfish can survive, but otherwise, the, the crabs, the shrimp, the the, the redfish, the things that are of great value, actually, in the fishery, are, are gone. Oh, my. I, I'm, you can't see me, of course, because we're on the radio, but my mouth is somewhat hanging open because I'm still sort of focused on this nitrate removal issue and realizing that we've created a whole industry around the pollution and then we dump it back in the river and create another problem for all of our shrimp farmers down below, and that whole industry, um, that's tragic, really. So that's the ammonia side of the story, or a very small piece of it that we should all be aware of. Now, what about the atrazine? Did you also look at that? We did, yeah. Um, You know, as amateur, uh, really as eaters, you know, as amateurs who showed up on a farm for the first time, we were immediately struck by um, what was involved chemically in growing an acre of corn. Uh, the fact that we sprayed our our food with these toxins that were not safe for us to, to expose ourselves to. You know, we were wearing goggles and gloves when we did it and, and were safely up in the cab of the sprayer. Um, we, we wanted in the Big River film to follow those chemicals and try to understand what they actually were and what they did. Um, and it turns out that uh, you know, one of the ways a lot of these chemicals work is you apply them to the top of the field uh, and wait for rain to come because they will dissolve in the rain and then the plant roots will drink up the chemicals and the weeds will die off. But that same attraction to water, uh, of course, causes many of these chemicals to start leaching further and further down into the uh, water table. And Many farmers across the Midwest have shallow wells that are untested, uh, and there are significant chemical residues building up in there, um, things like atrazine. Many of these chemicals are, are known endocrine disruptors. Are, are, there are all kinds of warnings from cancer organizations and public health officials about exposure to these chemicals being linked to terrible diseases like non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. And one of the members of the farm family we were actually working with when we grew our acre of corn died of a non-Hodgkin's lymphoma um, midway through our shooting of the film. And so that's a story we we tell in Big River. Now, most of the the corn grown uh, in the Midwest and really nationally is genetically modified, and there there are stackable traits. So we've got... uh, Roundup resistance, and we've got uh, the BT corn that has the pesticides sort of built into every cell. Did you look at Roundup at all or the glyphosate herbicide? We looked into it uh, to, to, to some extent because the uh, 
herbicide we sprayed on our cornfield. There was really a cocktail of different herbicides we sprayed, and, and one of the things we used was a glyphosate. Many of those chemicals are, are in fact, some of, the, some of the better things you could use um, if you are going to conduct chemical agriculture because they don't last as long uh, in the soil uh, or, for that matter, in the water as some of the, some of the older chemicals. But that said, one of the things that's really difficult about chemical agriculture is these things we spray change over time. As they start to break down, they change their chemical nature. And the glyphosate we applied, of course, met up with some of the atrazine we applied. And as those things uh, began to break down, they can reform into different chemical compounds. And the amount of testing that's been done on what these combinations of chemicals actually do in terms of our health is extremely limited. Uh, so we've really rolled the dice uh, by deciding to spray our fields over and over again with this cocktail of herbicides and then let those herbicides meet up again in the water table and, and mix in our drinking water. Right. It's my understanding that when the tests are done on these compounds, they're done on individual compounds, but as you say, there's very little research into what happens when we start mixing them and we start getting these synergistic effects or the situation that is 1 plus 1 equals 3, as well as I've seen some very interesting data looking at some of these inert ingredients where that are supposed to be, um, you know, just carriers, basically, of the, of the uh, toxic compound, but maybe they turn out to have biological effects that we hadn't... Uh, thought about before. Absolutely right. And, and beyond that, uh, some of the most interesting new research that's going on is finding that, you know, the, the old, our old understanding of chemicals was that it was the dosage that mattered. You know, right. If you, if you got a vast quantity of uh, some toxic chemical and were exposed to it, then that might make you sick. But some of what we're learning now is that Actually, it can be small quantities of some of these chemicals that do more damage than large quantities. Exactly. Yes, the, the U-curve or the J-curve showing that minuscule amounts as well as high amounts have, uh, have damage at, at those differing levels. And also what's interesting, too, is the timing of the exposure so that, um, you know, if a farm worker has a pregnant wife and she does his laundry in with hers or if you've got children out playing in the fields or drinking the water, you know, at, there are different times in the life cycle when we are more susceptible to the harmful nature of those compounds, and there's just so much we don't know. Well, we, you know, we've put farmers in a very difficult position in our country. We ask them to produce as much food as possible, and in many ways through our subsidy system and through the kind of... Uh, food system we, we have and perpetuate with our own consumer choices and voting choices, uh, we keep asking farmers to just, at any cost, produce more. And oftentimes, the, the methods you have to use to produce more, the, the chemical agriculture, um, those are things that come back and hurt the farming population the most. Um, it's not New York City that's, that's seeing cancer clusters as a result of herbicide exposure. It's the heartland. Right. If you're just joining us, we are speaking with Kurt Ellis, who you probably know best from his feature film, King Corn. Uh, but we are talking today about uh, a new film that 
when is this going to come out, Big River? Big River is is just launching uh, as we speak. Its first screenings will be in the next few weeks, and uh, we have a great program set up so interested individuals and nonprofit organizations and schools can host screenings in their church or community center or library uh, or on a campus. Um, so there's a website set up for the film, uh, bigriverfilm.com, and there's information and a screening application to join our Harvest Tour on the website. Oh, that's fantastic. You know, I think that your targeted audiences are right on, uh, you know, churches that talk about uh, worshiping the creation. W- one of the farmers that um, I had interviewed several months ago, very religious man, and he was an organic farmer. And I said, why do you farm organically? And he said, well, I don't believe that God intended us to poison the earth. And so I think that partnering with churches, as well as partnering with schools, um, young people seem to have an innate sense and respect for Mother Nature. So I think that you've truly um, gone after a wonderful population in terms of interest and action. And I love that it's 30 minutes. It's manageable. Um, we can get it into libraries, schools, churches, as you say. It's it's a wonderful grassroots effort to really educate us. And then, of course, after we've become emotionally disturbed, but when we realize what we're doing to our water and our planet, I know that the King Corn website has wonderful action steps. Do you have action steps related to Big River as well? We do, yeah. The, the screenings that we're facilitating will... Um come with, with screening kits to the organizers that have uh, postcards that you can fill out and send your indicate your support to USDA Secretary Vilsack uh, on some very specific changes we can make to, to start uh, reforming this chemical-intensive agriculture that we've been pursuing. Yeah, we talked a little bit before we went on the air about uh, commodity groups And, you know, if we change our agricultural system to better protect our water and our environment, um, it's going to shake things up a bit, won't it? It will. um, But, you know, maybe in a way that's that's better for all of us. Uh, I can't tell you how many farmers we met when we were living in Iowa and working on this project who said that, that this system really wasn't working for them either. The reality is many farm families don't, uh, don't enjoy the experience of, of spraying for months out of the year. If you're if you're farming a thousand or two thousand acres, um, that can be a full time job for several months of your late spring, early summer, just out spraying chemicals on your land. And uh, I think that's a very different kind of farming than than uh, our great grandparents practiced. Right. Well, is there anything that you that you would like to tell those of us who live in the Midwest right now about what we should specifically be doing and paying attention to? Well, I think the most important thing is that um, this shouldn't become a, a, a polarized, contentious kind of issue. Um, I don't, I don't really see it as a something that can be easily split into into two sides. The reality is, we're all in this boat together. Uh, we all need an abundant, healthy, clean supply of food, and we need to make friends in order to to make that supply chain actually thrive. So rather than getting getting angry about these issues, I think the most important thing is to become educated, and then it's a good first step to make some changes as a consumer, uh, you know, to purchase more local food and organic food, food from, from 
from people where you can shake the hands of the, the farmers who you're buying it from and, and ask them how they raise their crops. But the next step, and it's one that, that is extremely important to take, is to begin to advocate for policy change on these issues so that we reimagine the underlying structures uh, of our food system. Right now, we, we really ask farmers across the Midwest to grow as much corn and soybeans as possible, probably a lot more than we need. And we, we discourage growing fresh, healthy food uh, or food that's not made with the same degree of, of chemical contamination. And uh, those are things we can change. We can, we can support the idea of green payments, rewarding farmers not for their all-out production and the abundant harvests of chemical agriculture, but for using good management practices and keeping land alongside streams and rivers uh, in grasses so that there's some natural filtration uh, of the water after it leaves the farm. Yeah, you know, I really like your statement about looking at this like we're all in this together. I mean, so often I think that we are pressed to be polarized. And yet when you think about it, if we all have you know certain things in common, like we would all need and want clean air and drinkable, potable water that's safe, and we all care about children. And I, that's the one common denominator um, that I really like to focus on personally is the fact that, you know, we want to make sure that our children will live longer than we do and that they will have a planet to inherit. And what better way than to start looking at the agricultural system um, to provide better food and safe safe water, safe air. And yet, I think when we start talking about policies, people sort of glaze over. I mean, it's so complicated. Or I'm sure you've been at parties before where maybe these subjects come up and people will say, well, I don't want to get political. How do you bridge that gap? It's difficult, but I, I think, you know, the big misconception that needs to change is for a long time people have imagined farm policy as really just being about farms and only applying to farmers in the, the so-called farm states. But now the, the Midwest is predominantly an urban place. It's, it's much more a place of eaters than farmers. Uh, and all across the country, farm policy is really food policy. And the more we can understand the ways in which our everyday meals, I mean, the, the food we sit down and eat with our family at the end of the day, uh, the more we can understand the way that food is shaped by farm policy, um, then I, I think the more engaged we'll become with it. We all like to eat. We all have memories and cultural heritage and uh, all kinds of uh, warm feelings wrapped up in our ideas of what food is supposed to be. And I think we can all get behind a little bit of advocacy work that tries to make sure our, our government is encouraging the kind of foods we all know and love. Well, your King Corn website and BigRiverFilm.com websites are great places for people to go and learn more about the small steps, whatever steps they feel most comfortable taking, that they can you know, get behind together, work as a group to make changes. So I really appreciate that. Um, not only have you created, you know, great film work, but you've also created a great resource for people who want to become involved. Now, um, very quickly, I know we don't have much time left, but would you like to tell us about your truck farm project? <laughs> 
I would. We uh, we we got a little depressed looking into chemical agriculture as much as we were. Uh, so my buddy Ian and I have been doing a fun summer short film project where we turned the back of our 1986 Dodge pickup into a farm, and uh, we have a 20-member CSA, a, a community-supported agriculture subscription farm, uh, that we feed out of the back of the truck. And That's amazing. A bumper crop of uh, <laughs> tomatoes and lettuce, arugula, uh, broccoli, jalapeno and habanero peppers, uh, sage, basil, parsley, uh, and we make uh, periodic deliveries in the truck itself. <laughs> this is just amazing. So if you've got an old truck out there, folks, don't sell it just yet. You no, could... <laughs> I mean, it's, it's the Crops for Clunkers uh, campaign. This is fantastic. Where can people see the truck, and how can they get more information about this? If you go to our uh, our website, wickeddelicate.com, W-I-C-K-E-D-E-L-I-C-A-T-E.com, uh, you'll find the truck farm and some funny little short films about it. Fantastic. And I love the notion of a bumper crop. That's really great. (laughs) (laughs) Kurt, is there anything that I didn't ask you? Is there anything that you'd like to say before we need to wrap up? Oh, just that I'm I'm grateful for the chance to to talk with you. It's a great show. And uh, just um, it's really wonderful to see more and more people connecting with where their food comes from and asking the tough questions about uh, why we farm and eat the way we do. Well, thank you so much for not only being here with me and and all of our listeners today, but for using film in such a creative and fun way to help get the message out. And I also think it's it's really great that you are a history major who um, went into this line of work. Uh, Well, there is no other work for history majors. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) But I, I think that all of us can learn so much from history. And I think uh, you bring that that knowledge base into your work, and it's very valuable. So thank you for being with us. Thank you, listeners, for tuning in. And just a reminder that Food Sleuth Radio is produced at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Thank you, Kurt. Thank you. <laughs>